Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to take them and open them with me to the New Testament book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, where we continue on in our sermon series, Can You Hear Me Now? I realize today when most of us hear that phrase, can you hear me now, our mind probably goes to a commercial that was made popular by a cell phone company here in America that depicted in all the advertisements a little guy walking around through the city and on the beach and all the different rural regions, and he would ask the question, can you hear me now? And then there would be a pause, and after that pause, he would say, good, good. Truth is, I imagine every single one of us who own a cell phone, we understand uh, what it's like to to drop a call, to lose a call, to to miss a message, to misunderstand a message. And sometimes it can be laughable because there are, are things that are miscommunicated that maybe you didn't attend that can be a little bit humorous along the way. Other times, it can be frustrating. Anybody relate to that? But even at times, if you miss the main message that someone's conveying, it can at times be dangerous. The truth of the matter is I believe that God is looking at the body of Christ today. He's looking at the big C church today. And in the midst of all that's going on in the world in recent years, in the midst of the pandemic and all the political unrest and all the social issues of the day, and even in the context of war that's taking place, and in the midst of it all, there's a message God is proclaiming. There's a message that he doesn't want us to miss. There's a message that he doesn't want us to misunderstand. It's like God is looking at the church today and he's asking the question, do you really hear me? Well, what is God saying? What is God saying to the church today about the people that he wants us to be? What is God saying individually to us as the people of God? I believe we don't have to look any further than looking back to God's word. There in the first century, God spoke, Jesus spoke directly to John, the beloved disciple, to write to seven literal churches. And from these messages, we have very practical words because these messages were written to literal churches made up of literal believers in Jesus, just like Crosslink Community Church is today. There are things in this that God wants us to hear, to receive, to examine, and then to walk forward in obedience. Some would say, but Pastor Matthew, that was so long ago. I mean, look how much society has changed. I mean, we, we scientifically, we technologically are much further along in 2022 than they were in AD 95, for example. And while there have been many advancements in the context of the culture, the truth is this. When you look at the context of the human heart, When you look at the challenges that we face in our own hearts, in our own relationships, in our own world around us, when we look at all the conflicts, when we look at all the temptations to compromise, when we look at all the pressures that we experience, we quickly realize as far as we've come, there's a whole lot that hasn't changed. There's a message that God wants us to hear, I believe, for a time such as this. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, we see the second letter to the churches of Asia Minor. It is the letter to the church of Smyrna, where today I want to preach to you on the subject, the crowned church. The crowned church. I don't know about you, but it's amazing to me how many people live their lives pursuing a crown. Maybe it's not a literal crown. Maybe it's a proverbial crown in the sense of they're pursuing an award. They're pursuing an accomplishment. They're pursuing a title or a specific position. 
In fact, even Hollywood and the stars that be, so to speak, understand how intrigued we are and curious we are about the winners, about the heroes, the conquerors, the people who will get the crown, so to speak. This, of course, in our culture causes us to watch in suspense to see who's gonna get the final rose. We watch in suspense to see who's gonna get that golden buzzer, the million-dollar check, the recording label, the championship trophy, the MVP status, or even simply win the election. We want to know in our human nature who gets the prize. There's something about that that we look at and oh, it would be wonderful to get such a prize. What a privileged position to be. Even in AD 95, as Jesus is speaking these words to John, through John the disciple, there were the annual Olympic games that took place. And those athletes would train and they would discipline their bodies and they would practice and they would work hard to compete in those games in the hopes of winning not only fame and not only notoriety, but winning a literal crown. Back in those days, they'd made a crown made out of olive leaves from the city of Olympia. And they would take those olive leaves of a crown and there they would adorn them on their head. They would exalt them on a platform and there they would be praised. All that discipline for a temporary olive leaf crown. And yet Jesus looks to the church at Smyrna and he promises them and he offers them a crown that will never fade away, a crown that is eternal, a crown that will never fade, a crown that can't be diminished or destroyed. It is the crown of life. From man's perspective of all the churches of Revelation, this is the church most to be pitied. But Jesus looks at them and says, but let me tell you, about a crown. Revelation chapter two, if you're physically able, will you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? The crowned church, listen to what Jesus says in these four verses of scripture. They are sobering. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for how it speaks into every matter and even every season of our life. God, may we today hear your word with an absolute clarity. I pray that you would remove distractions from our hearts and minds. Help us to hear clearly what you're saying to us. And may it be for your glory, honor, and praise, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. you. may be seated this morning. Smyrna, the crowned church. Here is this letter is written to the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was a very interesting city in the ancient world. Smyrna was about 35 miles north of the city of Ephesus that we learned a little bit about last week. The city of Smyrna was known as the flower of Asia. It was known as such because it was a beautiful city. In fact, of all the ancient cities and frankly of all the churches that would be written to, Smyrna stands out in a very unique way because the city of Smyrna since 1930 has been known as the city of Izmir in modern day Turkey. 
Even today, you can Google images of the city of Izmir and you can see the port and you can see the beautiful water, you can see the buildings and you get a picture even today of just how beautiful Izmir or former Smyrna really was. The name Smyrna was, not, was, was named after the, the, the trade of myrrh because myrrh was this popular spice that helped the city become extremely wealthy. Smyrna was one of the wealthiest cities of the ancient world and there it sat in this beautiful port. But there was one thing about Smyrna that caused it to be a unique, challenging environment specifically for the church, and that is this. Smyrna was extremely patriotic to Rome. So severe was their patriotism towards Rome that they not only said, hey, we're a part of the Roman Empire, but they literally demanded the worship of the Roman emperor. In fact, it was in the city of Smyrna that they built the first temple in honor of Tiberius and demanded that every one of the citizens, with one exception, declare that Caesar is Lord. In other words, you didn't just submit to Caesar, you must also worship Caesar. Well, hence you can see why that would be a challenge for those who are followers of Jesus. Because followers of Jesus do not worship anyone as Lord except for one, and that is Jesus Christ. Those who are followers of Jesus know that Jesus alone is King of Kings, and Jesus alone is Lord of Lords, and so they only worship Jesus. Which means in Smyrna, the believers were gonna face some great challenges. In fact, if you did not declare Caesar as Lord, then you would be publicly tried for the crime of blasphemy. And if you did not fall in submission to the Roman government, then you would be charged with the public crime of treason, both of which were punishable by death. So there we get the picture of what the believers were facing in the church at Smyrna because they would only worship Jesus and only would bow to him as Lord. It's in that context that Jesus has a word for the persecuted church of Smyrna and for all who are persecuted for the name of Christ today. I want you to see four things in this passage. Number one, I want you to see the attention of Jesus. The attention of Jesus. I remind you last week as we read through Revelation chapter two, verse one, that Jesus said, I am he who walks among the golden lampstands. What are the lampstands? They're the churches. What Jesus was saying is this. He's saying, I'm walking up and down the churches. I am here in your midst. I am right here with you. To those who were not living for Jesus, to those who were living as a hypocrite, proclaiming to love Jesus, but living like the devil the rest of the week, so to speak, that is a reality of conviction because we recognize that Jesus is walking among us. He sees and knows all things. But for those who are living for Jesus, for those who are living by faith, for those who are doing right, that is an incredibly comforting truth. Why? Because Jesus says something in every one of these letters and we see it here once again in verse nine. What does he say? Jesus says, I know, I know. To the believers in the church at Smyrna who were facing all sorts of conflict and challenges and persecution, when Jesus says, I know, that is an incredibly comforting truth. Oftentimes, if I'm as a pastor, if I'm in a ministry meeting or in a situation where I'm counseling someone, I might say to them, I am so sorry for what you're experiencing. I might say to them, I'm trying to understand what you're experiencing, but I can rarely say I know because I'm not omniscient like Jesus is. And rarely have I been in someone's shoes in their exact situation. It's very rare that I can look at them and say, I know. But Jesus looks at these believers and he says, listen, I know. It's like he's saying to them, I know who you are and I know where you are. I know what you're going through. I know what you're facing. 
Jesus knows because he's omniscient and knows all things, but he also knows because Jesus himself experienced the same things when he walked on this earth. He knows by personal experience. I want us to understand today that when we go through trials and adversities, it is not merely that Jesus is aware of what we're going through. It is that he has attention, attentiveness to. He is aware of those things, but not only is he aware, he cares for us in those moments. Jesus is speaking to the church at Smyrna to say, listen, I know you, I know where you're at, I care for you, I'm with you. So in that context, we see some things that Jesus knows. What is Jesus attentive to in the church at Smyrna? First off, three things. First off, he was attentive to their pressure. Notice what the scripture says. He says, I know your tribulation. The word for tribulation here, many of us can relate to that. We say, oh man, all God's children have trials and tribulations. We all face some difficulties and circumstances and storms along the way in our life. The Bible says that it rains on the just and the unjust alike. We all experience trials as a part of this life. But the reality is the word for tribulations here literally means pressure. I know the pressure that you're facing, that you're under. And in fact, the word that was used here describes something that is under a heavy weight. And that heavy weight, it feels like it's going to crush you. I would imagine today, if I were to take a soda can, a Coke can, and I were to place it on this stage, and I were to stand on it and place my weight on it, it would quickly be crushed. Why? Because I'm overweight. Well, that's part of it, but why? Because it cannot withstand the pressure that I would be putting upon it. That's kind of the picture here. Jesus looks at the believers there in Smyrna and he says, listen, I understand that you are under a great weight of pressure. And we understand that historically, Domitian, a blasphemous tyrant, was in charge and he was wreaking havoc on everything. In fact, when you go back and study his reign, it looks like he was constantly looking for someone to pick a fight with. And because he was bully, he was always looking for the weaker person to put pressure upon. So here are the believers in Smyrna. And, and there's, a, a, frankly, a sense of fear. They're afraid if they go here, this is going to happen. If they go here, this is going to happen. And everywhere they go, they are living on edge. Will they be falsely accused? Will they be persecuted? Will they be burned at the stake? Will they be fed to wild animals? They don't, there's a pressure in every aspect of their life. Secondly, Jesus knew their poverty. Listen to what the Bible says. Jesus, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Jesus was aware and attentive to their needs. This word for poverty is very interesting. In the Greek, there are two words that we get our English word poverty from. The first word means having nothing to spare. The second word means having nothing at all. When Jesus says, I know your poverty, the word that he uses here in the Greek is the word that means, I know you have nothing at all. By the world's measurements, by what everyone would see as valuable, I realize in the world's eyes, you have absolutely nothing at all. And we understand that. Historically, because they would not bow to Caesar as Lord, because they were worshiping and serving towards the kingdom of God, not towards the kingdom of Rome, we understand today that Christians in that day were charged higher taxes. Not only were they charged higher taxes than everyone else, but because they were so ostracized, frankly, and hated the Roman government would not allow them to trade their goods. So even though Smyrna was on a port city, they would not allow the Christians to be a part of the trade, which kept them in a constant state of poverty. And then in addition to that, because they were largely a weaker people, oftentimes 
the soldiers would pillage and plunder whatever they wanted from the Christian households. It was this kind of description in Hebrews chapter 10 that says this in verse 34. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, listen, and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. They were poverty stricken by the context of the world, but listen to what Jesus says. But you are rich. You're rich. I realize in the eyes of the world, you don't have anything. I realize in the eyes of the world that people look upon you with pity and even disdain because of how poor you are. But I am saying to you, church, that you have the things that really matter for God. You are spiritually rich. Think of that for just a moment. They didn't have large bank accounts. They didn't have the comforts and conveniences that we have today. They didn't have the nice technology, the cool lighting and all those different things. But Jesus said, but I want you to know, you are rich. Why? Because they had Jesus. They were rich because they were not living by the things that you see. They were living by faith and they were focused on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Please understand this morning, if you have Christ in your heart and are living for him, then you are the richest beyond anything that this world can offer. The Bible says it this way in Romans chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all. Listen, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Ephesians chapter two, verse seven says this. In the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, we are not rich by what we have in our hands, but by who we have in our heart as Lord. The question is, do you have Jesus? You could have everything this world can try to offer, but if you don't have Jesus, you are poor indeed. You might have nothing that this world has to offer, but if you have Jesus, you have the very riches of heaven to you in Christ Jesus. Patrick Henry, the old statesman, said it this way. What a quote. I have now disposed of all my property to my family. There is one more thing I wish I could give them, and that is this, faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Patrick Henry said. If they had that, and I had not given them a single shilling they would have been rich. And if they had that not, and I had given them all the world, they would be poor indeed. What is the source of your riches? If you're finding your riches in anything this world has to offer in eternity, I assure you, you will have much regret. The third thing that Jesus was attentive to is this. He was attentive to the pretenders. Listen to what Jesus says to the church at Smyrna. And I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews, listen, and are not. Jesus knew, even at the church of Smyrna, those who had a false profession of having a relationship with God. Now let me illustrate that in the context of what we know historically. In the Roman Empire, there is one group that got a pass especially in the context of Smyrna. There was one group exempt from having to declare Caesar as Lord, and that was the group simply we known as the Jews. In fact, much of the wealth from the city of Smyrna came from the Jewish people, and because of that, Smyrna let the Jews do whatever they wanted to do. And for some period of time, the Christians experienced an exemption because they were seen under the same banner of the Jews. But there was a problem. The person that the Christians were worshiping was named Jesus Christ. 
They confessed, they professed that Jesus came to this earth. He was born of a Jew. He died. He rose again from the grave. He ascended into heaven to prepare a place for all who believe. He alone is the Lord and Savior, but there was a problem with that. The Jews hated that message. Why? Because they were the ones standing before Pilate crying, crucify him, crucify him. So the Jews looked at the Christians with disdain and disgust because ultimately they were worshiping a Lord and a Savior that they had been responsible for crucifying. So there were some Jews who genuinely believed in Jesus. There were some Jews who genuinely turned to God, but there were many of them who were doing this. They were saying this, we're the children of God. God established a covenant with the Jewish people. We are children of Abraham and of Moses. We belong to God. But Romans chapter two, verses 28 through 29, the apostle Paul goes to great length to show us that there are true Jews and there are false Jews. And what the apostle Paul is largely saying in that context is this. God's perspective of those who are truly Jews, who are truly his children, those who are in covenant relationship with him, it's not based upon the legacy and the lineage they were born into. It's not based upon the faith of their grandfathers. It's based about their own response and relationship with God. In other words, what God is saying loud and clear in Romans chapter two is this. A Jew was not a Jew because of his race, but because of the circumcision of his heart. What the apostle Paul is saying is this. Those who are truly Jews, truly children of God, are those who have been pierced to the heart. They've been cut to the heart. They've been convicted of their sin. They've been convinced of their need of a savior and they've looked to God by faith for his grace and his mercy. Those are the true Jews, the children of God. In other words, in Smyrna, many people were saying we belong to God, but they were acting like the devil. We should be reminded that if we truly have a relationship with God, then we will also have a new nature that causes us to look live and love like Jesus. Many of the Jews in Smyrna in the city were proclaiming a false faith in God so that they would be accepted into the church. And then once they were accepted into the church, they were taking in the Christians and they were revealing the identity of those Christians to the Roman government so that those Christians would be persecuted and killed. It's in that context that Jesus looks at those who have a false faith wearing a mask, acting one way on Sunday, but living differently the rest of the week. And here's what he says when he sees their deception. They blasphemy. They, the, I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews, but they're not. They're actually a synagogue of Satan. The reality is even in our day to day, there are many who will profess a faith in God who demonstrate nothing of the character and nature of God. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 13 that literally that the wheat and the tare would grow in the same field and it wasn't until a time of judgment that it would be clear what was truly the wheat and what was the chaff, what was the tare that was just an imposture and a fake. In other words, the Jews claimed to be people of God, but there was clearly something, rather someone missing in their heart and it was seen in their actions. Jesus knew it all. And Jesus said, listen, church, I want you to know, I know what you're facing. I know what you're going through. By my own experience, I even know what you're feeling. But the second thing I want you to see this morning is the announcement of Jesus. Jesus did not just speak to say, hey, I know what you're going through. There was a word of announcement that Jesus needed to make them aware of. And he did so in a very sobering way. Verse 10, listen to what Jesus says. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. 
Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Jesus in this moment of announcement gives them words, frankly, that they probably didn't want to hear, but they needed to hear. I don't know if you've ever been there before, but that's where they're at. Jesus here says three things about suffering that would hopefully get the attention of this church and cause them to understand, but also cause them to have hope. The first thing Jesus spoke of was the rise of suffering. The rise of suffering. When Jesus says, listen, don't fear what you're about to suffer, here's what he's saying. Church, it's about to get worse. Now that'll just encourage you, won't it? I'm sure the pastor that would be standing up preaching today, much like the prophet Jeremiah that would stand up to the people of God and say, listen, God says judgment's coming and it's gonna get worse. What did they do to Jeremiah? They wanted to kill him. Jesus looks at the church and he says, listen, it's about to get worse. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The word suffer here literally is referring to physical anguish. They were about to face an intense persecution that would bring physical anguish, the physical anguish of imprisonment, of beatings, and even unto death. And the American church today would say, Paul, 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 wait wait a second, preacher. Didn't Jesus promise peace, prosperity, and joy? Jesus did promise those things, but those things are measured differently than the standard of the world around us. Wait a second, didn't didn't Jesus promise health, wealth, and prosperity? I mean, if I believe in Jesus, I'm gonna be healthy all the days of my life. My bank account's gonna be full. Life is gonna be easy, and I'm always gonna be happy. Our faith was not founded in Disney World, okay? That's not, there's a problem with that statement, this health, wealth, and prosperity. Here's the problem. It's nowhere in the Bible, Jesus never promised that. In fact, Jesus told us that if we live for him, if we truly live for him, we're gonna face some suffering along the way. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when, everybody say the word when. Not if, but when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward where? In heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus said in John 15, 18 and 20, if the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world will love its own. But because you're not of this world and I chose you out of it because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. In other words, there are certainly times that God may deliver us from our sufferings and afflictions, but there are also times that he entrusts us with more so that we may become rich in that which matters for eternity. The rise of suffering. It's about to get worse. But then Jesus goes a step further to say, let me tell you the reason for suffering. The reason for suffering is twofold. First, the reason for suffering is practically because Satan hates the people of God. Satan will do anything he can to rob God of glory. And so one of his main attempts is that he seeks to kill, steal, and destroy all who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus said in John 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. First Peter chapter five, verse eight says it this way. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That word devour is not a pretty word. There's nothing light and comfy and warm-hearted feeling about that word. This is what the enemy desires to do to all who belong to Jesus. But remember, God is in control. God intends for good. In other words, God is not responsible for the suffering that takes place in the world, but because God is sovereign over all things, he can overrule those things and even work in them to accomplish things in our life. And did you know that even today when we go through suffering, there are things that God can accomplish? In fact, Jesus refers to it here when he says this statement. The devil's about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. Now remember, in the church, there were many people who claimed to love God, claimed to be living for God, but they weren't really at all. But in the midst of suffering, guess what happens? When you're going through trial and suffering, it cuts all the fluff away. All the stuff that doesn't matter, all the glitz and glamour, all the bells and whistles, all that's sent away. And what's true begins to be exposed in the context of suffering. Why? Because suffering presents for us a great test. Please understand, our faith will be tested. James chapter one says it this way. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, these tests come to the life of a believer to prove, purify, and perfect us. God works in the midst of those tests, not only to prove us, but to purify us and to strengthen us and equip us to be the vessel he wants us to be. Adrian Rogers said it this way, a faith that hasn't been tested can't be trusted. Here, the believers in Smyrna were facing intense persecution that was only getting worse. But in the midst of this, God was accomplishing a testing of their faith. Did they really believe in him? Were they really believing the promises of God? Here's a question for us. When we face suffering, are we still going to worship Jesus then? When we face trials and circumstances, are we still gonna praise Jesus then? When life doesn't go our way and things go hard in our life, are we still gonna worship Jesus then? Or is our worship really about us? Oftentimes, listen, oftentimes in the American church, we're coming on the basis of, well, man, that music really made me feel good. Well, I really like this about that. I really like that facility. I really like this style. I re and what we begin to do is we begin to base a focus of Christianity on our personal preferences and not on the convictions of who Jesus Christ is. If we're truly worshiping Jesus, the style of music doesn't matter. The way someone dresses doesn't matter. Whether you got a building or not doesn't matter. Whether you have heating and air or not doesn't matter. Whether the parking lot's full or not doesn't matter because it's all about one person and one person only. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why when you go to the Philippines, you can worship under a mango tree. That's why when you go to Haiti that's been destroyed by earthquakes, you won't even have a building, but you're still worshiping Jesus. 
That's why right now, when brothers and sisters in Ukraine are gathered in bunkers and basements and they're still worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, they're still doing so wholeheartedly because it's not about them, it's about him. So there's a, there's a, a, a focus in that. They understand that they're proving in the process of this. God is proving and perfecting and strengthening their faith. The third thing I want you to see is this. We see the restriction of suffering. Jesus looks at them and he says this statement. You will have tribulation for 10 days. In other words, Satan's gonna come against you with all he's got. But it's only gonna be 10 days. There are some who look at this pastor scripture and they will debate it. There are some who will use this phrase as a means to try to discredit the entire book of Revelation or perhaps the entirety of the Bible because they read those 10 days as the very literal 10 days. We know today historically that the persecution in the church of Smyrna lasted a lot longer than 10 days. But I think they're missing the point. There are two other times in scripture, Genesis 24, 55 and Acts 25, verse six, where the same exact phrase is used to simply refer to a brief generic period of time. I don't think Jesus is speaking of 10 literal days here, but what he's largely saying is this. In light of eternity, as bad as it gets, it's only gonna be a small, just a small period of time in light of all of eternity. Yeah, you're gonna face trials. Yes, you're gonna face suffering. Yes, you're gonna be persecuted even unto death, but it's only 10 days. We surely understand that in the context of our culture. A few years ago, the pandemic began. And early on, we were told that if you were potentially exposed to COVID, you had to go and wait for it. And the rest of us were like, man, 10 days, that's horrible, you know? But it was only 10 days. Life would be altered, but it wasn't forever. It was just a short period of time. And what Jesus is saying in this moment is, listen, I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know it's bad, but it's not gonna be here forever. It is only but a season. In other words, Satan's time and allowance is limited. The old song said it best. The trials that you see today, they won't last always. They didn't come to stay, they came to pass. In the midst of the suffering, we feel the weight, we feel the burden, we feel the grief, we feel the uncertainty. But Jesus is reminding us, hold on, I'm with you. I'm gonna carry you through. It's only gonna be 10 days. The fact that God wants to ensure us of is very simple. No matter what you suffer through, how hard the troubles and trials, how difficult the opposition, there is a very firm fact. It is not forever. And best part, God has the final word. God has the final word. He had the first word of creation, let there be light. He had the defining word of creation, it is finished since debt has been paid and God himself will have the final word when literally this heavens and this earth is destroyed by fire and God establishes a new heavens and new earth. All of history is in his hand. Third thing I want you to see is this. I want you to see the appeal of Jesus. If you're still with me, would you say all right? The appeal of Jesus. What does Jesus want to say to this church that's facing this suffering and persecution. What might Jesus be saying to the church here today? The appeal of Jesus. I want you to see something very directly. In our Americanized version of Christianity, we almost expect Jesus to scoop in with a Superman cape and say, 
I'm going to make it all better now, bam, done. In fact, we have been so accustomed to an Americanized Christianity that it almost seems like sinful if he doesn't do that. But, but listen to what Jesus says. Verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Now, now it's gonna be temporary. It's gonna be 10 days. This is gonna pass. But don't be afraid. You be courageous is what he's saying. Be courageous as you live by faith and live for me. Second Timothy chapter one, verse seven says, God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and of love and of a sound mind or of discipline. Hebrews chapter 13 says, for he himself has said, I will never desert you nor will I ever forsake you so that we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Don't be afraid. Why don't we need to be afraid? Because our faith is in Jesus. Jesus has conquered death. He has conquered hell. He is the source of eternal life. That's why Jesus would say in John 16, verse 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me, you may have peace. Well, if our government did such and such, if I had such and such, if I had this much money in my account, no, no. In me, you might have peace, Jesus says. In the world, you have tribulation, but take, what's the next word? That didn't sound very courageous. But take courage, I have overcome the world. Not only be courageous, here's the next part. Here's where it might sting. Be faithful. Be faithful until you feel good. Be faithful while it's easy. Be, pay, be faithful while everything's going the way you want it to. No, no, no. Verse 10. Be faithful until death. I hear these words of Jesus and I realize that they are completely contrary to our culture. And frankly and sadly, completely contrary to much of what we've heard in the church. I can't help but to think of John chapter six when Jesus has proclaimed a truth that was difficult to hear. As soon as it was difficult to hear, as soon as it didn't make the people feel good, the Bible says that many disciples left Jesus that day. And Jesus looked at Simon Peter in John chapter six and he says, do you not want to go away also? But Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Peter understood that it wasn't about how he felt, it was about who Jesus is, and that was the basis of how he's gonna live the rest of his life. To whom shall we go? Jesus was calling the believers in Smyrna to be faithful even until death. We know by the year of AD 55, for example, there was a bishop of Smyrna by the name of Polycarp. Go read about Polycarp's life this week. Polycarp, church history tells us, was discipled and mentored by a man simply known as John, the beloved disciple of Jesus. And in AD 55, at the age of 86 years old, because he would not bow to Caesar as Lord, he was brought before the authorities. The authorities even begged him, turn from your faith, recant, deny Jesus, and you'll be spared. And Polycarp said in AD 55, 80 and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? 
They bound his hands and began to burn him at the stake. And when wind began to blow the fire away from him, one of the soldiers took his sword and pierced it through his heart. And Polycarp died for his faith. The greatest threat against the church today is not the persecution that may come against us or the poverty that we might experience or even the deception of false believers. The greatest threat against the church today is fear and a lack of faithfulness. Where does that apply to you today? Where does that apply to me today? Are we walking in faith and are we living faithful for the Lord? Final thing and we'll close. I want you to see the assurance of Jesus. The assurance of Jesus. I understand that this message is heavy. I, 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 can I just be very blunt to tell you, even as I'm, I know the direction the Lord is leading in the context of this sermon series and this past week studying and then Wednesday in the process of preparing this message and as I'm preparing this message, I take a break and I'm turning on the news and I'm beginning to hear all the events unfold. Over the last, uh, we have many, many, many brothers and sisters in Christ, ministry partners and friends in Ukraine. Um, Many of them through have means to which we've been communicating over the past three or four days. Can I just say to you that, and I realize, I don't wanna uh, take scripture out of context here, but because of what they're experiencing in their situation and what I'm studying and preaching burden over these last several days. But in the midst of that, Jesus gives an incredible word of assurance. Listen to the statement in verse 10 and verse 11. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The crown of life is speaking in the context of a crown of eternal life that Jesus gives to all who believe in him. James chapter one, verse 12 says it this way, blesses the man who perseveres into trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. We get so focused on how we're living this life that we often fail to take time to consider eternal life after this place. But Jesus says, I offer a crown of life to all who love me. Here's the question. Do you love Jesus? Love is not seen by how you feel. It's seen in our devotion to him, our faith in him, our commitment to him. Do we truly love Jesus? But then this final word of assurance He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The Bible speaks of death in two tenses. There's a first death and a second death. The first death is what most of us think of. And frankly, it's the very thing that the believers in Smyrna would have likely been afraid of. And even today, many of us still today, we, have, we, we don't fear maybe what's after, but that first death, we, we don't want to think about that. We don't want to think how we're going to experience that and what those moments are going to be like. But physically, we understand the first death is a physical death when one day we'll breathe our last breath. But the Bible speaks of a second death. The second death is a spiritual death. It is, if you will, an eternal death that will mean the complete separation of us from God from all of eternity. Listen to what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 through 15. 
and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the what? The second death. And whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That second death is referring to an eternal separation from God for all of eternity in a literal place called hell. But how does God view the second death? Here's what it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In other words, God desires that we would all experience eternal life in Christ Jesus. God has done everything possible by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins and for mine. Three days later, raising again from the grave to prove that he's a Lord. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father even now interceding for us. He's preparing a place for all who believe. He's done everything possible to offer us eternal life. The question is this for each of us. Have we received that gift? Have we accepted it by faith? I love how the scripture addresses these words was because it reminds us who said them. This is not merely the address of a pastor or John, the beloved disciple. This is Jesus, the first and the last. The author, the perfecter, the fulfiller of our faith. This is Jesus, the one who is dead and has come to life. I cannot imagine how that encouraged the believers in Smyrna to be reminded this world's not our home. And for all who have faith in Jesus Christ, we are rich beyond measure and we have absolute assurance that when this world is gone, we're gonna be with him in heaven. Here's my question. Do you have that assurance? Do you know without a doubt that you'll be with the Lord in heaven? I want to close with a reading of Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 through 14. We think about Jesus being the one who offers eternal life, the crown of life. I want you to listen to that in the context of these verses of Scripture and in light of what we've been experiencing in recent days. The Bible says this. Jesus said, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation. They'll kill you. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness has increased. Most people's love will grow cold. Listen to this. But the one who endures to the end, the one who is faithful no matter the cost or the circumstance, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. 
We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any questions about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.